this morning. Thank you. Um, our scripture this morning comes from Esther, uh, chapter 3, verse 13, and chapter 4, 8 through 16. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Mordecai told the king's eunuch to command Esther to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Then Esther told Haddock to tell Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom, to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these 30 days. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. This is the word of the Lord. Lee, um, there I am, for reading the scripture for us. Uh, as if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we are uh, have been going through this series, a series that we have called "The Bible's Greatest Hits," and we've looked at all these Old Testament stories uh, that we that have made the the Christian faith right, who have, that have have defined how people understand who God is, how we understand our lives. And so today is actually the, our last Sunday in this series, and I think we saved. One of the best stories for last, it is a little, it's a smidge dark as uh, Finley got up to read. I always laugh when the, the reading starts with, you know, annihilation, um, death, killing women and children. Uh, it's always such a, a shock to the system, isn't it? But the story of Esther, I think, is one of the more relatable stories. And that may sound a little bit ridiculous, right? Me standing up here being like, you know, I really identify with uh, the queen of Persia uh, who lived in the, the middle of genocide. But it's true. And here's why it's true. I think we can identify with Esther the most is because Esther doesn't have something that, that many of the other stories we've told this summer do. When you hear the story of Jonah, like we did last week, you hear a story of a man who, who somehow, somehow, some way is having a conversation with God. He's being told what it is that he ought to do, and he knows what God wants from him. Gideon had an angel come and visit him to call him to, to God's work. Moses spoke with a burning bush. But for most followers of God throughout time and place, uh, this has not been the case, and it's not true for Esther either. 
See, while they heard uh, words from God, sometimes orally, sometimes in visions, Esther in our story hears not a single word. No instruction on what to do. No commandment on what is right and wrong. Esther is left to kind of figure it out as she goes along. In fact, the silence of God, the, the fact that he does not speak into this story is one of the most noteworthy aspects of the story. If you look at it um, as a piece of literature, you notice that not a single time in this chapter of the Bible, in 10 chapters of the Bible, 5,000 words in the Hebrew, not one time is the name of Yahweh mentioned. In 5,000 words, Elohim, the, 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 uh, the Hebrew word for God, is not mentioned. The name of God is not mentioned a single time over 10 chapters of this book. And people who have read this for centuries have gone and... Oh, why is that the case? Why, why would he, the author not mention God? Here's why I think it is. I think the author knew that you and I would be trying to follow after God, trying to understand the ways of God, and we might not always hear his voice. And we might not always see his messengers. But he doesn't want us to get confused and think that that means God's not there. God shows up in the story of Esther, but he shows up in a way that she does not see coming. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to take a look at the story of Esther through the lens of this choice that she makes. A choice that she makes in, in the, the midst of God's silence, in the midst of God's direct command, what she is supposed to do, she has to make a life or death gamble, which side would she choose? On the one side, as her people, the Jewish people, are being rounded up and, and exterminated, she could choose to bet her life on the king's protection. See, she had gone years and kept her Jewish identity hidden from the king. Surely he would keep her safe in his palace. Surely no one had to know that she was a Jew. She could bet her life on staying silent, on being hidden, on avoiding conflict. Or, or she could choose to take Mordecai's advice, and she could bet her life on this idea that God might just show up in this moment. She could bet her life on the idea that God would show up and, and flip the script that seems already predetermined, that God would show up and redeem and save his people from this disaster. And she has to make a bet one way or the other. She either is going to, to bet on the king's protection and remain silent and incognito, or she is going to, to put herself out there and bet on God showing up. And she has to make a choice. And what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at, at, at a couple of things. One, why Esther might choose to not trust God. Why it is that Esther would, when she's hedging her bet on her life, she goes, I, I'm not going to bet that God's going to show up and bring redemption. And the second, we want to look at why she does why Esther chooses to make a bet that seems illogical, incomplete, foolish. 
And third, I want us to take a look at a couple things of, of what, those choice, what this choice points us towards. So first, let me make the case why Esther might not bet on God, why she would not expect God to show up. And the reason's pretty simple, because God hasn't shown up yet. God hasn't shown up yet as her life has been withered and destroyed. Now, some of you guys are, are good church-going folks, and so you're, you're going, hey, no, wait a second, wait a second. That's not how the story of Esther goes. Esther is like a, a princess, right? Like, she goes from rags to riches. This is the story of, 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 of a woman who is, is flourishing. And I want to challenge us to consider the fact that we may have Disney-colored glasses on. Okay, Disney colored glasses, like rose colored glasses, except for everything looking rosy, it's that we turn every story into a, a, a Disney story, right? And the plot fits. When we first meet Esther, we find a girl who is down on her luck, a, a one who is, is ostracized from society and who is an orphan, right? Every good Disney movie starts with an orphan, right? There's, think about it, Aladdin, right? Uh, you know, Simba lost his father. Uh, I'm, I'm doing this on the fly, so I'm forgetting a few of them, right? Like, name a Disney story that, that, that the protagonist has both parents in, right? Bambi, Bambi, start, we know how that story starts. And so we read that story and we go, oh, she's an orphan, of course, that fits the script, but do we ever pause to consider what it means to be an orphan? The story tells us that not only is she an orphan, but that she is one of the people who had been ripped out of, uh, or, or her people had been ripped out of the land of Israel and carted off and taken uh, to this foreign land where they lived as an ostracized minority. So much so that in the story, Esther will do everything in her power to keep her Jewishness hidden because she's afraid. Esther is a woman who has suffered greatly. She wonders who she is. She, under, she, she, she wonders what is going on in her life. She wonders who is hers. The story starts with Esther in suffering, and it is, I think, a really good bet to guess that she wonders, where was God when my people were taken? Where was God when my family, my father and my mother, were taken? The story continues in, in 2, 7, and it tells us a third thing about Esther. Not only is she a captive, not only uh, is she an orphan, but that she is beautiful, strikingly, remarkably gorgeous. She is beautiful in, in, in form and in features. She is stunning, which sounds, in the Disney paradigm, sounds really good, right? You picture Jasmine, right? You picture, you picture some gorgeous Cinderella in the ball, and you think, oh, how wonderful, how delightful. But what Esther would have known is what many women around the world have known is, is that to be beautiful and from a vulnerable population is not really an asset, but a liability, a liability because those who come to exploit would find you defenseless. And in two, chapter 2, verse 8, that's exactly what happens. 
the king has uh, decided to find himself a queen. And so he has sent his minions out amongst the empire to take women from their homes, to bring them into his harem, to spend a night with them and send them away to, to another harem. This is a story that maybe if you grew up in church, you've heard it It referred to as, you know, like a beauty pageant. This is a happy, cheerful thing. She won the beauty pageant. But the reality is a whole lot darker, isn't it? I don't think that they were doing the, uh, the interview portion of the beauty contest in the king's chambers. This is a woman who suffered and no one was there to protect her. And I would guess that at some point in that process, she thought to herself, where is God in all of this? Why has God not shown up for me at all? Which brings us to the current crisis. Esther, hidden as a, as a Jewish queen now, this, this woman who occupies this throne but whose identity is hidden is presented with the circumstance in which uh, the Jews were set to be annihilated, where genocide was planned, where her own identity was threatened to be uh, revealed. That her adopted father, Mordecai, was under a direct threat from the king's greatest officer, Haman. Haman, who so hated the Jews and particularly hated Mordecai, that he convinced the king that all of the Jewish people should be exterminated. And in the moment of her suffering after suffering after suffering, she is asked this question, would you bet your life on the idea that God would show up and save the Jews? And it makes a whole lot of sense for her to say no. I could, no one could blame her given what she had lived through, what she had seen, if she took one look at this choice and said, God has not shown up in my suffering. God has not shown up in the suffering of my people. I'm not going to take that bet. And maybe you're here this morning and you have suffered greatly. And so to hear us talk about, talk about giving your life to God or, or trusting yourself to Him sounds like a losing bet. Because the suffering in your life, the suffering in the world has convinced you that God can't possibly be there. Or maybe you've just been so beaten down with life and the, the thumps and the bumps and the terrifying reality that we call life such that, that your, uh, your condition to, to, to respond to a choice like this the way that she is threatened to do it. It's not my job. It's somebody else's calling. Somebody else will speak God's word for him. She doesn't have to deny God. All she has to do is be silent, to stay hidden, to stay protected from the force at hand. But Esther makes a choice that makes no sense unless if she believes that God is really there. She makes a choice that doesn't make any sense unless she thinks that God will show up. So why does she do it? Why does she go in front of a king 
who is so petty and so violent and so fearful of women that he is very likely to have her killed? Well, I think the answer is that the story of God has become louder in her heart than the protection of the king. The story of God has become louder in her heart than the story of the king. What do I mean by that? I want you to picture Esther, who is not seeing or hearing God's face, but she is exposed to stories, right? And you picture a a radio or a, or a TV that is telling her the story of the world, and the, the volume on the king's protection is really high. She lives in the king's palace. She knows what kind of authority he commands. Day after day, she sees the people coming in and out of his court. She sees uh, the people who are executed. She sees the people who are vindicated. She knows how powerful the king is, and that volume of how much the king could protect her is really, really loud. It's turned up to a 10. And that is why uh, if she is going to make the choice that she does, Mordecai comes to her in verse 13, and the first thing he says is, you've got to turn down the volume on the king's story. He says, do not think to yourself. Don't for one second think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the Jews. Mordecai comes to Ezra and he says, don't, don't get the stories crossed. I know that this is what you see. I know this is what you hear. I know that this is what is tempting to believe, but don't do it. Instead, Turn the volume up on the story of God. What's he say in verse 14? For if you keep silent at this time, delete relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. Why does Mordecai think that uh, relief and deliverance will come for the Jews? What reason in Mordecai's experience does he have to believe that God will show up and, and save people? What stories has he heard that has convinced him that God's people are safest when they are with him? Well, I think it's the same stories that later in the story we'll hear uh, Haman's wife, Haman, who's this evil character in the story, right? He's the one who is plotting the death and destruction of the Jews. And, and if you want to understand the theology of the book of Esther, you have to look at his wife as he's plotting and scheming and raging, and she goes, Whoa, 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 wait. You're trying to attack the Jews? You're trying to attack Mordecai? You're trying to go after God's people? That is a fool's errand. Why? What reason does this woman from Persia have to believe in the God of Israel? Well, she looks at the story of Mordecai and says to Haman, whoa, 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 don't touch that. This story is much bigger than Mordecai. And Mordecai says to Esther, whoa, 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 this story is a lot bigger than you. Because the stories of the way God has saved his people, the way that he has intervened in the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the way that he delivered in Gideon, the way that he sought the peace of Nineveh is known. The story of God is known even if it is not cited, and it is the thing that gives her confidence. Mordecai, when he tries to speak into her life, he turns down the volume on the king's protection 
And he turns up the volume on God's story because he knows that the story of God needed to be louder in her heart than the story of the king. Why do I say it? Why, why is this important for us today? Because we don't live in the same time and under the same threat as Esther, but the same thing is true of us. We live lives in a world that will crank up the volume of the king's story to a 10. Right now we're in the middle of, uh, right, the, the beginning of an election season. We saw the mayoral uh, debate. We saw the Republican primary debate this week. And so for the next year and a half, we will be inundated with messaging, right, where we are, are told all of your problems are because of that guy over there, right? And all of your salvation can come from, from that woman over there. Over and over, no matter which side of the aisle you sit on, you will be told and you will, you will have candidates try to drum up fear and anxiety and hatred inside of you for those people over there. And what are they doing? They're rehearsing a story for you that tells you, you there is a way for you to be safe in the world. There is a way for you to, be, uh, to have your interests protected in the world, and that is to vote for me. And over and over again, if you listen to those stories too loudly, it will drown out the hope that salvation comes from the Lord. Or to maybe get a little closer to home. You live in Memphis. And that means that your uh, drive around the town, your, your listening uh, to the news will train you to fixate your mind and your heart on our failing schools on drive-by shootings on 240, on robberies in broad daylight. And your heart can be conditioned to, to, to follow patterns in response to that, right? To seek security, to seek safety, to, to, to navigate your way around the city where you avoid the bad parts of town, to install gates at the entrance to your neighborhood. Looking at you, Chickasaw Gardens. And there's nothing, by the way, wrong with the king's protection. I can't stand up here and tell you whether it's a good idea or a bad idea to put up a gate. I'm not a security expert. In fact, putting a gate on front of your neighborhood may be the very best, most God-honoring thing for Chickasaw Gardens to do. But I will warn you. I will warn you that gates have a way of telling our hearts a different story. Gates may have a way of telling us each time that we drive through them that you need a gate, that the world out there is scary and dangerous and there are evil people abroad, and if it was not for the gate, then you would be destroyed. Gates have a way of whispering into our hearts every day that you are safe and that you are protected when you hide behind me, when you are not out in the open, when you can be silent and hidden. And that story becomes really dangerous when God calls you to care for the orphan, to care for the poor, to care for the immigrant in our midst, people who live on the other side of the gate. 
then it becomes very, very, very difficult if the volume of the king's protection has been turned up in your heart for you to hear anything else but it. But God invites us to do just that. As Esther heard the protection of the king, she made a choice to remember the story of God. And the question for us is this is kind of, what, how are you finding the story of God? Where are you hearing of a God who saves his people in life or in death? Where are you fixating your mind on the deeds and actions of God? Because if you're looking at your own life, your own fears, your own sufferings, you will never see the movement of God. But when you look at the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when you look at the life of Esther and you get that, that narrator's perspective, when you can see their life fit together, you see the workings of God in their life. And the volume goes up a little bit more. When you join a community of, of people a fellowship of God's people, and you celebrate life together. As Matt likes to say, we, right, we remind one another of God's love for us. How does that happen? Well, it's no accident that the book of Esther ends in a great Jewish feast, a feast that is marked by the giving of gifts to the poor, the giving of gifts to one another, of celebrating the, the, the movement from sorrow to gladness, from mourning to holiday, as it tells us in chapter 9, because when we are with the people of God, when we are told the stories about God, when we can look into each other's life and see God on the move, it turns the volume of God's story up in our hearts, and it allows us to turn the story of the world down. Esther chooses to bet her life on the fact that God would show up. Esther chooses to bet her future on that thing. So what do we learn as we watch her? What do we learn as we're spectators to this story? Well, first, we learn that Esther made the right choice. It was right for Esther to bet on God. As Esther's story unfolds, we see, uh, while it does not name God in the story, we see his unseen hand come to play. He doesn't write on the wall like he does for Daniel, and he doesn't write on stone like he does for Moses, but he shows up in all of these little just-so-happens. Because, you see, Esther's grand plan to save the Jews was was to, to find the perfect time and the perfect place to reveal her identity to the king, to convince him to, to change course, to convince him to, to turn on Haman instead of her. But what you quickly discover is that uh, the moment comes and her plan is falling apart. It is too little too late. She'd invited the king and Haman to a, a, a feast in her home, but she did not make her request. Instead, she said, come back tomorrow and I will make my request. Well, that very night, Haman's hatred for Mordecai rises up to, to such a level in his heart that he says, I am going to take action now. Esther's grand plan for the salvation of the Jews will not come until after Mordecai has already been hung on the gallows in Haman's yard. Haman plots destruction, and Esther is too late to save the day. But it just so happens that there's somebody else at work in the story. 
Because that very night, it just so happens that the king had insomnia and wasn't able to sleep. And it just so happens that he chose to cure his insomnia the same way you do, by reading history books. He had an official from his court read him stories of his kingdom, and it just so happens that that courier, that that servant in the king's court read to him an excerpt from a story that happened five years prior. When five years prior, Mordecai, Esther's uh, adoptive father and Haman's sworn enemy, had just so happened to have heard, overheard a plot to kill the king. Mordecai had alerted the king to this threat, and it just so happened that the king never rewarded Mordecai for that. And so as, as, as Haman comes into the king's court intent on killing Mordecai, it just so happened that at that very moment, the king says to his people, I need one of my officials to carry out an important task. So it just so happened that Haman was there to accept the task, and it just so happened that instead of being able to kill Mordecai, he was tasked with parading Mordecai around the city, giving him honor and esteem. And so by the time you get to the part of the story where Esther makes her big reveal, where she says, I am of of the Jewish people, it is an attack on me and my life. O king, would you save me? You see that salvation has already been brought. But it's not been brought by her strength. It's not been brought by her faith. It's not been brought by her act of courage, though all of those things exist. It has been brought by a God who does what He always does. He shows up for His people. But the second thing we discover as we watch her is not just that Esther was right to bet on God, it's that Esther's bet on God is not just right because things worked out for her. You can envision a story of Esther that finished a lot like the first chapters did. In the first chapters, Esther is met with mortal crisis, with danger and threats and humiliation around, and in those moments, God chose to not intervene. He chose to not speak. There's a version of this story that could have gone Esther goes to the king, and she is humiliated. She's denounced. She's cast out. There's a version of the story that could have finished with Esther going to the king and her being killed, and it would not change the fact that she made the right bet. Here's how I know. Because 500 years later, God himself would come to earth. And 500 years later, Jesus would walk upon this earth, and he too would have the opportunity to lay silent. He too would have the opportunity to, to, to protect himself, and he too would have the option to, to choose to put himself in harm's way. But the story of Jesus goes very, very differently than the story of Esther. Jesus the story of Jesus does not end in, in, in resolution. It does not end in God saving the day at the last minute. The story of Jesus ends with his humiliation and his death. Jesus hung upon the cross naked, deserted by his friends and those close to him. 
We know that Esther made the right bet, though, because in Jesus we see what happens if that was the story of Esther. We see that in Jesus we serve a God who does, where death does not have the final word. We serve a God who, as the Apostle Paul put it, is a God who raises the dead. That even in death and destruction, on a, on a personal level, we see that in life or in death, God shows up. If not on this side of death, then on the other side of death, God gives life. And that's the kind of payout that no bet on an earthly king can ever pay you. No security, no fence, no hope could ever give you life. But God can. So we serve a God who shows up. And if you want to see him, if you want to hear him, then you need to know that his story must grow louder in your heart than the stories of this world. You see, the story of Esther is not an inspirational Disney movie. It's not a story of how your extraordinary faith can, can save the day. This is a story about a girl who suffered greatly and was asked to suffer more. Who, like her Savior born many years later, would long for somebody else, somewhere else, to take the mantle. Who longed that her suffering could be avoided and for some reason that only God knows she was not given that. But we know in Jesus that God shows up in that harrowing reality. That God shows up in life like he did for Esther or in death as he did for Jesus because he is a God who raises the dead. In life or in death, we serve a God who shows up for his people. And that's the bet that's worth taking this morning. Pray with me. God, we pray, Lord, that as we watch your salvation come to Esther, Lord, that you would turn the knob of our hearts, that you would allow us to hear it, that you would allow us to see it, that against the competing voices of peace and security from earthly means, we would see our hope ultimately and finally is in you. God, would you speak your grace into our lives so loudly that we cannot ignore it, so profoundly that we cannot dismiss it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.